that, a movie podcast where we, friends from Philadelphia, discuss the best, the worst movies of all time. Just kidding. Uh, but excitedly, we are on a wonderful network, Movie John, and um, Movie John Podcast Network, to be exact. And we are with some stellar other podcasts like Best Friends Forever, Cinematic Crypt, Depth Impact, Yeah, F1, uh, Hate Watch, Great Watch, like to movie movie. I saw it in a movie. Um, I'm so happy that Butter With That is amongst such incredible podcasts. What a family, movie John. Um, anyway. Uh, and there's some crossover also. If you want to go back and listen to some episodes of uh, both Butter With That and I Like To Movie Movie, there's been some uh, there's been some meetings of the minds as far as those two pods go. So uh, you'll hear us... Uh, kind of pop up here or there or uh, them here. And uh, yeah, it's been a great relationship so far. Looking forward to what comes. Yes. Great. Love it. You love to see it. Um, okay. So um, I'm here tonight, today, whatever time it is for you uh, with Connor, Christine and Dave. Um, Rip Tori, we love you. Don't know where you are. Hope you're having a good day. Um, anyway, so we are continuing on with our theme of time travel. I am so excited to talk about my movie because it's one of my favorites. But before we get into that, uh, how are y'all doing, and have you seen anything cool lately? Sam, I think it's time for our two-minute edition of What's Up with WandaVision. Yes, I By think- By the time you're listening to this episode, WandaVision will be long over, um, but episode seven, as of this recording, is the most recent one. Bit of a bridge episode, but lays the foundation for uh, exciting final two episodes. But it gave us the bop of the century. It was Agatha all along. Spoilers. Um, but like, come on. Didn't you know that? Anyway, whatever. We'll be listening to this at the end of March. Oh, so. spoilies. I'm going to watch it. It doesn't matter. It's <laughs> good internet. <laughs> it's as obvious as the twist in the lake house. It's okay. I don't know. I've, it's, yeah, it's, well, it's also escaped my brain just like the lake house. So it's fine. <laughs> I, I, I didn't even know anything. Speaking of stuff that is, I guess, um, kind of already come by the wayside as of the date of this recording. Um, one thing that I did see this past week, um, because it was, as of this recording date, the first episode aired, um, the HBO docuseries uh, Alan versus Pharaoh, um, that about uh, the very, very legally contentious relationship between uh, director Woody Allen and um, actor Mia Farrow, and uh, the abuses that, have been pretty well documented, but uh, uh, it's really startlingly bringing a lot of new ones to light. So it's a very difficult series, uh, you know, content warning, obviously, that involves a lot of uh, pretty detailed explorations and explanations of child abuse and is um, a really difficult and really challenging series. But I think one that is very important and one that I am looking forward to seeing through by the time this airs, I think the series will have concluded because it's a four-parter. But um, yeah, a very important watch. But that being said, going into it, uh, you know, uh, Full content warning, it's very difficult. What a story. I'm I'm glad to hear that it's four parts because I've really been enjoying The Vow on HBO as well, but that is like show. eight, nine episodes. That is a long like commitment to be in that like Nexium world. Like it's just very exhausting to watch it. So I feel like four episodes is like, and that's how long the Night Stalker docuseries was on Netflix. It's like, I feel like four episodes for something 
kind of heavy impactful is a good length. Well, the Val's also getting a second season, which is going to be exploring, you know, the continuing case against um, Nexium. Let's call it what it is. Cult leader. Um, oh, Christ. What's that guy's name? Who cares? Uh, he's a bad guy, but you'll look into it if you like. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that that was one where it kind of like it was rolling out as a lot of information is rolling out about the case. So I kind of appreciated that it was a little more extended. Whereas with this, it's uh, with Alan versus Pharaoh, it's definitely about something that's pretty already thoroughly documented. So I guess, uh, yeah, I appreciate this one's brevity, but I think the vow, I'm looking forward to seeing where that goes. Um, albeit a very difficult series as well. Both of them good. For sure. I've watched nothing except for the movie that we will be uh, talking about, but I have been watching short clips of the Drew Barrymore show. <laughs> it's wonderful. What is the Drew Barrymore show? They're on talk show. And it's surprisingly, well, no, it's, it's surprisingly moving. Well, okay, I've only watched like four episodes and by episodes, I mean like eight minute clips. But based on what I can glean from these eight minute clips, it's, she's a wonderful like talk show presence because you have no idea like what, where she's gonna go with an idea or what she's gonna talk about. But I watched her birthday episode where she walked into her studio to film like her show but had no idea what was going to happen. She just let other people sort of unveil things. And she just got like surprise guests. Like David Letterman came like in person to her show and they talked. She just has like, I feel like when you watch talk, watch talk shows, especially like late night, it's like usually the host is trying to outwit the uh, interviewee. You know, it's like, this is my turf. Uh, I'm going, you're going to say things that might be funny, but ultimately I get the last laugh, especially if you watch Letterman. I feel like that was always kind of his approach. I was going to say, that's like, a Letterman format. Um, she just has this like odd and wonderful presence where she'll just talk about her life and like be kind of open about things and topics. And then she'll just like be so emotional, but like movingly emotional about things. Like when David Letterman shows up, she's like, I can't believe you'd actually take the time to come to my show. And it was like really moving. I'm not getting paid for this segment. I truly like watching these segments. And if you just have nothing to do in, uh, I don't know, 10 minutes of your day, just t watch a clip. It's great. And yeah, she's, she's just doing her thing. And I'm, 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 I'm happy for her. <laughs> so that's all I have to say about the Drew Barrymore show. Also, Drew, I will be personally expecting a check after this this mention. <laughs> you will be expecting the check, having to listen to me talk about it. <laughs> I'll take it either way. <laughs> well, um, I don't know how to <laughs> transition from Drew Barrymore to this movie, but uh, let's do it anyway. Uh, too bad it's not next week. <laughs> Fuck. Oh, damn. <laughs> Let's just pretend we had an awesome transition and all right, everybody. So we are talking about my time travel pick, which is one of my absolute favorites. And that is 1985's Back to the Future. It's directed by Robert Zemeckis, written by Zemeckis and Bob Gale, uh, starring Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd, Leah Thompson, Crispin Glover, and Thomas F. Wilson. I think Christopher Lloyd and Sandra Bullock are head to head of the most repeated actor on this podcast. I was thinking about it. I think Sandy is at four and so now is Christopher Lloyd. 
which is, wow. I'm so glad you brought that up because we really should have a tally for directors and stars of like who we talk about. And I was actually- It's a risky premise. If you guys want to talk about eight P.T. Anderson movies in a row, then that can happen. No. <laughs> well, let it happen organically and then we'll see who, what our tally is. We might not have to like uh, set out to do- uh anyway um <laughs> moving on so um i was thinking about christopher lloyd and i looked up on his wikipedia page and that brought me to what an incredible year he had in 1985 um clue which we've talked about which was sadly a flop at the theaters and this one which is the exact opposite so the budget for this movie was 19 million and at the uh, worldwide box office it made nearly 400 million dollars which if you adjust it for inflation it's shy of 1 billion dollars so this was a money maker a powerhouse yeah um so if you haven't seen back to the future um where have you been? Uh, no, just kidding. Um, if you haven't seen Back to the Future, it's set in 1985, and the story follows Marty McFly, a teenager accidentally sent back to 1955 in a time-traveling DeLorean automobile built by his eccentric scientist friend, Dr. Emmett Jock Brown. Uh, trapped in the past, Marty inadvertently prevents his future parents meeting threatening his very existence and is forced to reconcile the pair and somehow get back to the future <laughs> uh, thank you wikipedia for that description um so this movie is just an absolute classic and when i was re-watching it for this podcast i was watching it on amazon and amazon does this cool thing where um if you hover over it a little bit it'll bring up kind of interesting facts about the movie and then also like goofs and things like that so i was very distracted watching it because i was just learning so much and there was a lot to really talk about so um some of the things that i learned in this rewatch was that um yes michael j fox was the first choice to play marty but he had a scheduling conflict because he was filming for family ties so instead eric Soltz landed the role but production lasted about a month um before zemeckis just knew the movie wasn't going to work without um fox i think that there was some serious drama between um zemeckis and Stoltz, but i couldn't really get uh, much of that uh anyway deals were made and the rest is history um this casting change required some serious reshoots and a temporary halt to production um you know when you hear that it's kind of a really bad thing because that's going to push back release dates and cost more money but they didn't actually push the release date back which created a huge rush to the finish line and it led to some sloppy edits and editing so there's a lot of unfinished special effects and so many goofs that was basically what i was doing the whole time rewatching it i was just laughing at all these goofs because there's a lot um Regardless, though, this movie is often considered one of the greatest films of all time. And in 2007, the Library of Congress added it to the National Film Registry for Preservation. Um, something that I knew, but I didn't know exactly how close in age all the principal cast actually was. So uh, Thompson and Fox are literally days apart from each other. And um, Wendy Jo Sperber? 
she plays Linda McFly, Marty's sister, was three years older than Leah Thompson, who plays her mother, um, which I thought was fascinating. And, you know, if you're thinking about special and practical effects, I think that they did a good job aging up um, Thompson and Glover in this movie. And also, Billy Zane is in this movie. That blew my small damn mind, let me tell you that. Um, but Phantom himself. Phantom himself. I don't know. Like, for me, every time I think of Billy Zane, I just think of Cal from Titanic, you know? That the too. That stick. Um, Wait, and- I miss Billy Zane. Who, did, who is he in Back to the Future? He was just um, a part of Biff's gang, so he's like a nobody. I was so glad you included that in your notes because as I was watching it, it had been a long time um, having seen this, you know, many years back times. It was just like, that's absolutely Billy Zane, right? (laughs) Yeah, definitely was. Um, So Dave, you've seen this movie many times. How about everybody else? Have you seen this before? Was it anyone's first time watching? It's been a long time since I saw it. I have also. I... I have seen this, God, it must just coincidentally be like every few years I watch this movie. Um, I was doing, this was maybe like three, two or three years ago, doing a Philly museum and, you know, cultural site day with friend of the podcast, Zoe. And so we went to a taco bar and then Back to the Future just happened to be on Netflix on the TV in Old City. And so we just watched most of Back to the Future when we could have left after just like 30 minutes. Um, and I actually just watched like a month ago, Back to the Future with my friend who had never seen it before. Um, so this is really fun to watch it with him, his first time seeing it uh, and knowing generally what it's about. But it was fun having him go through the emotions of the movie and the twists and turns that it takes. That was a really fun time to watch somebody's first time watching it. God, I would like give my left kidney to watch this movie again for the first time. It almost reminds me a little bit of like our Goodfellas episode where it's like this is such a property that is so storied and established and has been so thoroughly like lampooned or parodied or referenced in other materials that it's like i found myself like being like i don't really know what notes to take because it's you know it it feels like so many people it's such a big part of so many people's lives um but i'm looking forward to hearing what you guys think about it and if you're listening uh and have not seen it uh probably go check it out and i'm so glad you picked this sam in our time travel month because I feel like we have such a diversity of time travel films that um, the five of us picked and that I'm so glad that a classic, like the ultimate time travel classic is on this list as well. Um, Cause that just really rounds out all sorts of different kinds of time travel movies that we're talking about. And this one is like one of the Mac daddies of them all. Yeah, this really does feel like an untouchable classic. And believe me, folks, I'm not going to be touching it that much, you know. Um, I've got some great, I hope, uh, great discussion questions and points. Um, And the first thing that I'm so interested in hearing from you folks is um, I personally tend to steer clear of time travel movies because I think, and I've said this before, I think they're dangerous. Um, It is so easy to get caught up in the logistics of the mailbox and of the science behind all of these things that, um, you know, there's a fine line between possible scientific scenarios and a plot that is just hokey and contrived. And so my first question for you folks, was this time travel believable? 
I think it was believable because a machine is built to go back in time. That's that. Like, I feel like, you know, I'm no expert on time travel, but like, as far as like convincing an audience that such a thing could happen, I feel like building the unit that will travel back in time at least gives an audience an explanation as to why these events are happening. Unlike the previous movie, which we talked about, which no explanations are provided, but we just have to go along with it. Um, so I was very, uh, I was very convinced by the, the setup and the mechanics of it, you know, just figures it out. They figured it out. Yeah. I think that this movie, you know, as we've discussed briefly before in another episode uh, this month, there's sort of like two schools of thought as concerns, time travel, uh, one universe time travel in which the time travel will have always gone back in time and impacted the events. So therefore going back in time doesn't change anything as opposed to string theory, which creates tangent universes, depending on divergence within the prime timeline, which is more what we're treated to here. Um, and as far as string theory timeline stuff goes, uh, goes is this is, this is pretty true to that idea for the most part. I mean, like one thing that's a little bit, I, I, well, I guess it makes sense is like when he goes back in time, if he within this now tangent timeline, because he's gone back, interrupts past events that could have led to certain things, then those things will no longer have come to pass, such as his family and such as his own existence. So um, I think it plays with string theory pretty interestingly, albeit in a relatively limited sense, because it's pretty much just like him going back in time and his going back in time and impacting these events affects really nothing except for his parents and his own family unit. Um, whereas, I don't know, like like tangent universe time travel and like uh, string theory. Uh, I don't know. It's this, this month has made my head hurt. It's like there's so many different opportunities for like, and anything that they go back to could be different. And like, maybe he wouldn't have to go back and tell Doc that he was going to be shot. Spoiler alert, because it's an entirely different timeline where... A th- it's like the butterfly effect thing where maybe something he did th- this minor disruption in the fifties could have had broader implications. And it doesn't really delve into too much of that. It keeps it pretty insular to just like Marty's character and his origin, which is a strength of the movie because otherwise it gets, you know, <laughs> otherwise time travel mechanics get really, really complicated. And I think this is a very good, like pop culture, blockbuster, broad shorthand summary of string theory, time travel. One thing that, revisiting this movie made me think of is for you know listeners who don't know i'm about 90 days away from um becoming married my wedding day uh, to Alyssa, who i love and this movie made me think a lot about this time more than any other time watching like how and i think dave you brought up a great point of like, like what would those ripple effects look like for people outside of biff and his family and just this little town um, but it just definitely I don't know. I feel like resonated a little bit more emotionally of like, oh, these small little things or, you know, the people who conceived you not having this one specific moment totally changes and erases your entire life. Um, Just I feel like hit kind of at a different emotional beat than it had years ago, you know, watching this movie before. Yeah. And that makes sense that it is it is based on the emotional impact of a handful of characters rather than it being like, uh, I've gone back in time and, you know, I, I changed the way that my parents met. And now like, there's a different president. Like it doesn't really, it doesn't go that far, which is to the movie's credit because that gets really hairy. Yeah. 
everything that y'all brought up, I I love so much. I think that this really is like a, an emotional and and um, kind of of the heart movie. And it's certainly one that has come to mean different things to me throughout my life. So Connor, I definitely hear that. And and Dave, you know, your ideas behind the string theory, I think is fascinating because I think this was one of the first times in this rewatch that I did recently um, where I really tried to think about what was happening and whether or not what we were watching was happening in real time or if it was actually just a loop or like a replay. Um, and I think that this movie plays pretty fast and loose with like all of those time travel ideas. Um, I referenced it as uh, destiny versus intervention. And um, so Dave, I, I see that you're very much on the side of like string theory. You know, you can go back in time and you can change small things, any change is significant or whatever. Um, but is what do you think about this thought of it being a loop that we're not actually seeing in real time? about the loop concept, I feel like I was completely convinced by all of the time travel steps unfolding until the end when I saw Marty see himself in the parking lot. And then I was like, wait, 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 wait. So there's two, still two of himself that exist within this scene. And he's watching his other self go back into that loop. And I hadn't really thought about the concept of a loop before. I was like, oh no, they're going to, so I, I thought the resolution was going to happen where there was, was going to return to the same moment, even though he ticks it back like 10 minutes in time. Uh, really, yeah, to answer your question, I really was not confused or um, taken out of the story by the time travel concept until that final moment. Uh, and then when you brought up the idea of this continuous loop, I was like, that's a compelling and also terrifying narrative. I thought something terrible would happen if he met his other self. And I think that goes back to the Star Trek thing where I was like, I can't believe that old Spock met new Spock. So maybe that's a, that's something I need to work out with myself <laughs> and issues I have with parallel selves meeting. Um, but for the most part though, I, I was completely uh, swept up in the time travel narrative, except for the picture too. That was a great plot device or like narrative device, but him, being slowly erased as long, along with his brothers and sisters in that picture felt like a uh, Goosebumps episode <laughs> and not like a time travel movie. It's actually, you know what? I never thought about that before, but it's actually kind of funny because he's looking at a picture that is him, it's only him and his three siblings, or his two siblings, each of which are being erased by the consequences of him going back in time. But then it's like, why does this picture exist in this universe at all? Is it a picture if they don't exist of just like an empty space? <laughs> it's so weird. Like I get like, like storytelling as an element of storytelling, it's compelling and it like adds tension and it like, you know, makes the drama of the situation heightened, but like in the time travel and like the actual uh, details and how this would happen, the reality of that, it makes no sense. I think that's why this is the most iconic time travel movie because once you start dealing with time travel, unless you make it very broadly digestible, it gets extremely complicated even among like quantum physicists. So it's like 
you gotta make this just like the foundation of the movie and move on with your characters instead of it being so smotheringly restrictive as it is in some other movies including one that <laughs> will be coming to you shortly but yeah it's just like this movie really handles it i, I like, to answer i guess sam's your question is like it is it kind of a stumbling block or does it become uh kind of like too distracting getting into the minutiae of time travel to enjoy this movie then uh, no because it doesn't appropriately doesn't take the time to explore those things in a way that would bog the movie down instead it's just a foundation for us to have fun with the concept i think it invests its time perfectly in setting yes. and character which is more important for like a movie and an audience than the like quantum physics mechanics of it's not how an does this actually yeah. work. I remember right, it's not a Nolan. You don't need a whiteboard to figure out him drawing you know, all the lines to where everything leads. As a kid, I remember waiting for the like beginning 1980s section to end and for it to like actually like kick off with the Iranians coming in to like killing Doc Brown and going to the future. But watching it again, I was like, Zemeckis is doing some great work laying out what this town looks like mayor uh was it the mayor whose car beat up car drives around saying elect me again and like okay. all these great scenes then, yeah it like lays out and like sure the bell being broken is like a little force but it just all works of like of course this lady's out here championing for like this historic bell to be saved in clock tower um it's like it's just such a great efficient use of the first like 20 minutes of the movie to lay the groundwork for 1985 to have all of that payoff in the following, you know, hour of the movie. Yeah. I mean, I gotta say like, I never really thought too hard about this movie and time travel. It truly wasn't until when I recently watched it and I was like, holy shit, is this actually a loop? And the only thing that made me think this this was a possibility christine it's also like the last 10 minutes of the movie when you are watching all of this unfold from like our timeline i guess marty and you know when you watch doc get shot um the first time around uh and and marty doesn't actually like witness it totally right like we as the audience we see it um but not necessarily marty totally right because marty's um when doc's body's his body falls like it's like kind of hidden behind the van and we don't see any blood and like i don't know if this movie would have included blood like that um anyway but that for me was like really compelling as to what if this is actually just we've seen this before and it just continues over and over again. I see where you're coming from with that in the sense that if it were like a single universe time loop rather than string theory, then he would have gone back and he would have come back with the knowledge. He would have, he gives doc Brown the note that basically explains like, listen, you're going to be shot at such and such a time when we try to do this experiment and he hangs onto it. And um, that being an explanation for even when the, when the, timeline first takes place with marty that he is unaware of him already having gone back in time to introduce that information because it's again like single single timeline stuff is like you can't change the past you go back and everything you've done you've gone back and that's part of the fabric of the timeline but i think where this movie gets confusing in that regard is that the difference between how his parents remember meeting because he does go back and interrupt their meeting in the way that they remember and him arriving after the fact changes their fates. It's like instead of his father being kind of like, uh, uh, just sort of like, uh, I don't know, kind of like a, a uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just sort of like a burned out, like, you know, every man. Um, instead, he's like a prominent sci-fi writer. 
um, and instead his parents met a different way and so on. So like, it, I feel like it's more string theory than it is a loop, but it's hard to say because it introduces something that the artifact of him warning Doc Brown of something in the future that he then prevents himself from experiencing. I don't know. It's it's one of those things, again, where like the more I think about this movie, the less I'm prone to enjoy it. So it's kind of one of those things where I'm just like, all right, I'll take this at face value. And I loved I loved your comment to Connor. Like it's it's about like introducing characters, introducing set and environment in which this time travel sort of fantastical story is going to unfold. Something that really stuck with me was how great the set design and the the costumes look. Everything and the colors, everything looks so good. Every outfit, (laughs) I was like, give that to me right now. And the detail to the colors and the colors in every interior space uh, are so vibrant and so fun and so fresh. And also like, I know that Back to the Future is like an iconic 80s, an 80s feel movie, but I feel like great movies and great set designs sort of like transcend a decade. And it's like, no, this would look good in any decade. And I think it also has to do with the fact that it is playing with 50s and 80s and like kind of meshing meshing them, but also creating interesting contrasts to how businesses change, how outfits change and things like that. But like, like, yeah, I was just so impressed by how how great and how fun everything looked and and was and really added to the energy uh, of, of every scene. Um, you know, you're talking about the energy of every scene. How about Crispin Glover being the secret protagonist of this movie, which is something I never really structurally thought about until rewatching it recently. Um, he is just, George McFly is just a gem in this movie. Uh, God, and the makeup that they do when he's watching the TV and laughing at like the old rerun, like just all of his mannerisms and the idea of like a son going back to like visit his father and like what that, Crispin Glover just really like, I don't know if this was writing or him specifically or direction or a mixture of all of it, but he just really knocked it out of the park for me. Like, through and throughout for the entire movie. Mr. Chris McGlover is a confusing Hollywood fixture in a lot of ways. He's been in some very good and very bad movies, and every time he's crazy <laughs> in them. And, like, this this is more reserved for him, but, like, yeah, he's, he's a piece of work. He does his own thing, and it's odd and bizarre. Uh, this movie, rewatching this, really, really made me want to do this little gem that he was in called Reuben and Ed. And I don't know what category or what theme it's ever going to fit into, but (laughs) that would be a really fun movie to talk about. Um, Also, uh, energy-wise, I think that Michael J. Fox, ah, he just infuses every seat. It's just like matching the energy and vibrancy of set and color. Michael J. Fox's performance is so wonderfully vibrant. It's like... It's, he finds the opportunity to basically sprint in every scene. He like he'll be on a skateboard. He'll be riding on the back of the car. It's just like I couldn't imagine any other performer just infusing so much life. Uh, just watching him and just this like yeah, youthful, youthful vibrancy. And going back and watching it this time, like that's ab- that's not a stunt man that's michael j fox actually sketching on cars which is so cool and yeah christine to your credit like yeah that's that's a perfect summary 
I can't imagine anyone else having played this part in really in any era. We were talking about that a little bit via text earlier today, but like, yeah, it's, it, it doesn't work with anybody else. And like the insight from Zemeckis and from probably Spielberg, because he was a producer and probably played a heavy hand in this, which is really evident, um, acknowledging and realizing that like Eric Stoltz, <laughs> yeah, Eric Stoltz is fine, but like, regardless of who you try to get, it, it had to be Michael J. Fox. It's like, it's, his charm and his um his his uh, like acting chops at a young age are, are shuffled into the role per, like at a perfect intersection and it's just um yeah it's like it's another one of those like rare born to play apart moments and also what's so great is marty is so cool while also being totally uncool at the same time and like i don't think anyone else like like we've been saying could have really done that um other than michael j fox um and you know speaking of all of these like really iconic characters so we're talking about George and Crispin Glover you know like I, I when I watched this many many times before um I always had like a soft spot for George something about watching it this time just like really rubbed me the wrong way and I don't know why it was this time around because I've seen this a thousand times and I don't know what that was I love the scene when Marty has just gone back in time and he sees his father in the tree peeping on uh, the mother's character. And like, in my mind, my mind is playing, oh God, he's a peeping Tom. And then literally Marty says the exact line. I'm like, okay, at least they're calling this out. Like they're using Marty as a (laughs) way to be like, this is so fucked up. But like little moments like that, it's like, okay, yeah. <laughs> He's seeing this cop father for this young kind of skis. You know, he has, the character has contours and like has some fat, interesting facets, but like that was like ugh, rough. How do you guys feel about Christopher Lloyd? I feel like his performance is so incredibly iconic that it's tough to d- talk about, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, when I think about right. Like it's Doc Brown. It's yeah. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Yeah. I think that for the main two, it could have been no other actors. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, someone this time around that I I just loved Lorraine. Um, I've always loved her, but like damn she's cool like this is 1955 and we're seeing um in my notes here i said she's confident and sexually forward but like she knows what she wants and i really appreciated that and i always have but just like this time something about george rubbed me the wrong way the opposite was true here i just became like lorraine's biggest champion i think what about Biff. Is he a believable? I just, and um, yeah, I think Leah Thompson's performance is also wonderful. And like the, the contrast of the, of the older mother character and then embodying this like young teenager. Um, And yeah, I feel like as far as the parent to young teen transformation, Crispin Glover's is intriguing, but like, I would not say uh, convincing <laughs> but like I think Leah Thompson's performance is really um comedically on as the mother and then really compelling as the as the te- her teenage younger self um whereas I feel like Crispin Glover is kind of riding the same 
energy playing the entire time. I think part of the problem is that you've cast Chris Finkelover as like, uh, like whatever, like 45 year old guy at the start of the movie. And is like, ah, no. (laughs) (laughs) Well, like, no, I mean, he was, he was younger than Michael J. Fox. So like age wise, he's right on, but his energy is just so off this world that like, (laughs) I think nothing might seem like it fits the character. Although I don't know who I'd shuffle in. Like, I don't know how that, how you make that work. Like if you get different actors to play them at different ages, I think that wouldn't be as special. And even if it's handled in maybe a more like obviously nuanced way, as far as the difference of age and like, as far as how they're embodying the characters with different actors, it's nice to just have them both play the both parts. Albeit Crispin Glover, a little awkwardly playing, uh, playing both as opposed to um, the actors playing uh, Lorraine who, who, blends it perhaps a little bit more convincingly i don't know mixed bag so um this movie has iconic characters and iconic scenes is there anything that um really stands out for you that when someone says back to the future you think of the the fine the the finale where they're trying to you know they know the lightning is going to hit the clock tower at this exact time and that's the exact energy they need to propel marty back into the future I mean, that's just such a great scene of like Doc Brown having to climb this clock tower. The thing gets dislodged like at the last minute. He's like, he's the conduit for like the electricity to go through this. The cable came undone, like just Zemeckis. And I'm sure as you mentioned, Dave, you know, Spielberg's guiding hand as well. Just every part of this movie just feels like clockwork and like the exact beats hit uh, hit the exact right time. The performances, the writing. um, And that final scene is just still, you know, gets the heart going. I suppose for me, the thing that jumps out the most because I've seen it parodied in so many different things is uh, the the Chuck Berry scene with um, Michael J. Fox playing uh, Johnny Be Good. And um, of course, uh, Marvin calling Chuck to say, Chuck, and it's your cousin Marvin Berry. You know that new sound you've been looking for? Well, listen to this. And, you know, we've seen so many different things do that. I thought it was a little interesting going back to that this time kind of in some ways, like uh, not only because within the context of the movie, that means that Marty has gone back in time to perform a song that wouldn't have existed in his prime timeline had he not have gone back in time to inspire Chuck Berry to write it. So like, I almost imagine like someone's looking at a photo of a blank stage and then Chuck Berry just emerges in it, (laughs) like an inverse of the other thing. (laughs) But it also... uh, it's also not such, you know, with, with hindsight and, and learning how things are of era and so on. I think that, um, like, we were talking about um, a couple episodes ago, Sam, you were talking about the movie Ghost with uh, Pat Swayze embodying um, or, or inhabiting uh, the medium of Whoopi Goldberg and that being removed from the movie. And, like, it also reminded me, like, of the some of the critical backlash that Soul has been getting, that new Pixar film of um, Tina Fey's disembodied soul character embodying the corporal form of a black man and like that probably being why like that scene from ghost has been removed from streaming platforms and so on and like that's an you know an interesting dynamic to look upon and like a modern lens um that they probably well obviously weren't taking on in 1985 when they're making this movie but i do think it's not great that michael j fox has to go back in time to inspire chuck berry to Inv- to invent and establish a genre that would later be attributed largely to white men 
Yes. I'm I'm so glad, Dave, that you brought that up because as much as I love this movie, it has its problems. And I think that um, the way that this movie treats Black men and people of color is absolutely fucking terrible. Um, you know, it starts with the mayor, like, hey, he's a mayor in 1985. That's great. That's progressive. But anything that they maybe built or created in that moment is completely shattered when the only time you actually see and hear this person the only time they're on screen is when they're a janitor in 1955 and in my notes I wrote like this feels like a caricature of a person this is like the stereotypical um you know the the happy slave you know the happy slave narrative that people white people back in the day uh had to make themselves feel better for imprisoning all these people like that's what I felt while I was watching this performance and like you know god bless the actor like he did what he could but like it was just and and like in the same in the same moment of of Dave what you're talking about like Marty had to inspire Chuck Berry, um, Marty also suggests that he becomes the mayor, and it's like what the fuck man like you've just like has he taken this man's like agency away like like has he really altered like I I feel like I can't even touch that because there's just like so so much there, but like like damn you have basically no people of color and all the ones that you do you write like this or they are libyans who speak arabic and are trying to kill doc you know like the clearly the enemy yeah as far as the mayor thing i think that was maybe something that was perhaps well-intentioned of its era but yes has fallen under modern scrutiny so it's it's hard in a way to fault this movie for those short sightings yeah right like, we can't watch this in 2021 and, like, not talk about this. Same thing with him inventing rock and roll. There's such a history of um, white performers, like, taking the work of um, Black performers, particularly, rebranding it, and it was now theirs, you know, really discrediting that. So, yeah, that in particular is, like, uh, maybe it's a timeline thing where, like, I don't, I don't know offhand when Elvis was coming to the fore. But like, you know, Elvis came to the fore largely as a result of kind of like a white repackaging of a black music, an emergent black musical genre, rock and roll. And like, I, I, I don't know, like, again, I don't know when Elvis really hit his peak, but like, couldn't he gone back and like, it was Elvis instead of playing a Chuck Berry song so that he de facto invents the genre through time travel. Yeah. I think it's just a cutesy joke that they didn't really think about. And yeah, that, I agree, yeah. <laughs> And looking back is just kind of like, ooh. Yeah, it's just one of those things where time is told that uh, it's it perhaps not as progressive as it, an idea as they thought it was. It sucks when you have to like critique movies that you love in this way, but it's important to do that. Like even if it wasn't the intention at the time, you know, like intention versus impact, that's always important to talk about. Um, so. I picked this movie because I love it. Back to the Future 2 is actually my favorite. And I have gotten into very heated debates and discussions with my roommate as to which Back to the Future is better, two or three. The fact that anyone thinks that three is better than two, I can't understand it. I can't. I like missing- Can I just say, I can't believe that's a debate. (laughs) 
yeah, it's that's that's very one sided for me. I tend to uh, I tend to agree. Which one is the one where they go to the wild west or like the like out west or whatever? Yeah, that's three. All that's right. Back to the Future number one or number two. Twenty fifteen, baby. Yeah, like two is the two. best because they go to the future and then they go back to the past that they already went to. It's amazing. I this is what They're the like video game like a lot of video games. Yeah, kind of. I don't know. I, I'll figure this out on my own time. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know how that... I, I would be frustrated with that debate as well. <laughs> yeah, we basically... We both came to the conclusion that, like, we literally can't have this conversation anymore because it's just going to come to blow. <laughs> and I would fight over this. I, I do kind of wish the ending of this movie was not such sequel bait when yeah. doc comes back in times like marty your kids we gotta we gotta help your kids get in the car and let's go i did read like, that the end of that movie actually was not set up as a sequel uh promoter or whatever that it was in fact just supposed to be a little funny add-on uh it was like oh what's their next adventure gonna be and then obviously it was a big hit and they were like obviously we have to do some sequels it's, but it's one of those things least, that's smart to peg on at the end because it works either way yeah, you know, it was probably not an innocent, oh, we know we'll never do a, a sequel. Let's just do a fun, it'll only happen once little tack on because they were like, we can we can accomplish two things at once. <laughs> One thing I did want to bring up uh, that I think the same did mention at the beginning where there were some production issues where, uh, and we can see uh, editing problems or goofs kind of happening throughout the movie. It's interesting you brought that up because I did feel like so much of it was so tightly done that I was sort of surprised to hear you say that because the first opening scene of the movie is such a wonderfully tight uh, scene that I was like, oh, this is laying with, this is gonna be the movie when Marty walks in and there, or the, you already, are you already within uh, the doc's space and there's sort of this like Rube Goldberg machines, interesting inventions that are helping feed the dog, you know, the the robot that un, uh, opens the can for the dog food. Everything is so seamlessly unfolding. And then you see Marty walk in and he kicks his skateboard and you see the camera on the floor and the skateboard uh, lands on plutonium hiding under the bed. And you're like, oh, we're learning so much information from this really fun set and things that are happening so seamlessly. And so I feel like that sort of set the tone for me for the movie. I was like, oh, everything's gonna be so carefully done. And I believed it. I didn't really see very many goofs. Maybe I should have watched the uh, version with X-ray vision or whatever, but I, I felt like things were uh, pretty tight, um, especially because kind of the opening scene unfolded the way it did yeah i was gonna say like some of the effects obviously haven't aged with the most nuance as far as like them being committed to celluloid and then adapting to hd film you know after all these years and like the practical effects and like shortcuts that they took to make certain effects work um but i found all of them to be you know absolutely albeit they stand out on hd tvs which you know they didn't plan for being something when they made the movie but beyond that, like, 
I didn't I didn't find many like clumsy or like awkward things outside of that being an element to it. So Sam, I, I was kind of interested. Like, what are some of the goofs that you found, or what what are some of the things that really stood out in doing that research or that really jumped out in this viewing? So the biggest one is at such a pivotal moment, and I think it's kind of brilliant that it happens at this moment. So um, we are at the the mall parking lot, and this is the first time we're doing this, right? So um, we're so worried about Doc. Here come the Libyans. Um, you get uh, Marty in the car, and what you when the the camera pans out you see the end of the set and you see the crew <laughs> um but like if you're oh, really? not, yeah if you're not paying attention then you don't see it but there they are with their stuff <laughs> and it's and uh, it's really funny yeah i would say that's the biggest thing but you know what's interesting um i was watching something the other day where they pointed out the same thing in jurassic park and i never once notice that so there are ways that you know the focus is on something else so it doesn't matter if these things happen we could do those okay i'll go i feel like that all i'll say is i feel like that is the magic of a well-made movie is is if you're not like looking out for it you'll get swept up swept up with the story and not even give a shit if a movie uh, shows itself to be a terrible movie from the opening, you're like, okay, now I'm going to look out for this shit. But if it doesn't, then that's for the 10th or 15th rewatch to, for you to figure out. <laughs> exactly right, yeah. Right, yeah, that's, I was going to add that, like, yeah, I think I may know one of the Jurassic Park gaffes that you're talking about, which is, like, when one of the puppet raptors walks into the kitchen scene, like, uh, if you zoom in really, if you zoom in really far, you can see one of the ca uh, crew members like kind of like pat the the raptors like the raptor puppet's butt down a little to get it in frame. But like you know, it's it's one of those things where like I, I would have to someone would have to point that out for to me for me to even notice, which I think is probably true with this because uh, Sam, the thing you're mentioning sounds like a pretty glaring continuity or like production error, but I never noticed it before. So I guess it shuffled in pretty well. But I, I've also not seen this movie more than maybe like seven or eight times i noticed it because amazon told me <laughs> i still like if it was just me i still yeah there you go jeff bezos ruining our favorite movies among yeah. other things oh my god jeff bezos is the one who writes all of the x-ray <laughs> description <laughs> i knew it this whole time <laughs> instead of trying to make working conditions better in amazon warehouses he's like I got to write all the x-ray for all of the movies on my website. Um, well, like I said before, like, I love this movie so much. So I really appreciate this conversation. Um, one, one thing I want to say, and I'm, I'm saying this because Dave might have proved me wrong on this. So, um, I, you know that I love Chris Evans and for like the past like four or five years Chris Evans has like exclusively referred to Donald Trump as Biff and I was like oh that's definitely a reference to this movie and I know that um Chris Evans before has said that he likes this movie but what might it actually be yeah my theory on that which uh, kind of goes back to like my, my first uh my first like knowledge of the character or the name of the character is uh biff uh biff loman from death of a salesman who is someone who is just kind of sort of like 
perpetually admitted underachievement. Um, and I think that probably being a pretty relevant analog to Trump, as opposed to him being just sort of like a bully who almost goes out with <laughs> Marty McFly's mom or something. Uh, but, you know, he, he really likes the movie, Chris Evans, so it could be him referencing that. I just feel like it's one of those things where, like, Biff, after Death of a Salesman, became, like, one of those names, like, Adolf, where it's like, this only means this one thing, and we can't use it anymore unless it's for a point. So, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, it could go either way, because Chris Evans, uh, as we know, because you said the picture to our group chat, has at least in one picture formerly appeared dressed as Marty McFly. So it could just be that he's a huge fan of the movie, but I don't know. It could go either way. I don't know, Chris Evans, if you're listening. First of all, why? Um, second of all, no, yeah, please. Yeah, let us know. <laughs> do it. Um, p- please know that I'm not like some crazy stuff. Like, I, I, it was online. I found it online. I, <laughs> it's not like it sounds, I promise. But tell us. <laughs> What it's actually so imagine if Chris Evans was listening and never told us. <laughs> I would so genuinely hurt. kill myself. Like there was no other option for this. <laughs> so the stakes are high, Chris. Let us know. Yeah. He'd be send us that email two years in advance and we <gasps> know until two years from now that Chris Evans had been listening to our podcast this entire time. <laughs> God, honestly, nightmare fuel. That's what that is. <laughs> um, wow. You know, you start a day with only a certain amount of fears. You end the day with more fears. Who knew? Um, <laughs> okay. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say about Back to the Future before we wrap it up and put a pin in it? I think it's funny when he crashes into the barn and the kid thinks it's an alien and the dad thinks it's an alien from like the 50s comic book. I just thought that was funny. That scene always makes me chuckle. But then also how it comes back. I love when he's trying to scare his father and he's like, I'm Darth Vader. I'm from the planet Vulcan. (laughs) So good. I also love the idea that like his father is like, oh, obviously I have to do that. And then he tells Marty, he's like, I mean, I have to do this. I had this visitation in my dreams from Darth Vader. It's just like, if I acted on things that I dreamed about, it's just like visitation, weird things that I had. I was just like, no, never do that, right? Also, I like to think that in, in, in the same timeline, George McFly goes to see the original Star Wars in 1977, and it's just like, oh my gosh! It came to me in a dream! Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. That's the sequel I want. Well, uh, yeah, it's hard to it's hard to know what to say uh, 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 as far as closing up a discussion on this movie. It's a knockout. We, we've mentioned a few things that are problems that are maybe lenses that can be applied to it after the fact, but of its era and um, I think uh, in its aims as far as a time travel movie, it's it's no wonder it's top tier. Great theme. Love time travel. Let's work on it. Let's get some plutonium. Um, anyway, thanks so much for listening, everybody. Um, please check out our socials. We are Butter With That on Instagram, on Facebook, Butter With That One on Twitter, and um, send us an email, Chris Evans, two years from now at butterwiththatpodcast at gmail.com. And I promise you, I it depends on what you want. I might kill myself, I might not. Just you tell me in the email and I'll do it. <laughs> I hope that isn't what he sends. 
he would never he would he would like lay out the most thoughtful um he would not only lay out a very thoughtful summary of like the movies we've talked about but like say something nice about like us like he would just be so thoughtful about it he would he's like a very deep brilliant man yeah Okay. Well, <laughs> tune in in two years to see how this shakes out. <laughs> um. All right, everybody. Have a good day, night, wherever you are. Enjoy it. Enjoy the night. So long.